Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Ian Horvath and you are joining us now on the Natural Bead Podcast. This week I interviewed Jeanan El Hilwafi. She is a recent graduate from University of Maryland and working at the USGS Bee Inventory Lab. Uh, we talked to her about Ask a Bumblebee survey, some of her work on the Andean oil collecting bees coming up, and human virology. So let's get right into it. I'll have Jeanan start by introducing herself. Okay, so I am Janan El Hafnawi. I am an employee at the USGS Bee Inventory and Monitoring Lab, and I am coordinating the Ask a Bumblebee project under Sam Drogi, who I'll talk a little bit more about because I think. He's very, very cool and also a huge part of this project. But just for my sort of background, I just this May um, 2022 graduated from the University of Maryland. I have a, I majored in general biology and my senior year, I kind of found bugs and I added the entomology minor. And then I also have a minor in sustainability. So I'm really just kind of interested in different interactions in ecology and I love interactions between native plants and native bees I think it's super cool that's awesome the the uh the place you work the USGS is that where the photos come out of like those really high def photos yeah oh my gosh <laughs> I can't tell you how many hours I've spent on that Flickr site downloading those photos and just zooming in on them because those are so cool I feel like Every tax dollar I pay, that is worth it. Just, just, for that, just to get those photos out of it. Yeah, I, they are so, so cool. And I think that is really kind of just so important to getting people interested in like just really native habitats, I feel like, because there's just so everything that exists in most of the photos are from Maryland because the bee lab is in Maryland and that's where I'm from. I've lived here my whole life and I never paid any attention to any of the bugs until you start to see photos like that, that is so zoomed in. And you're like, wow, if you look closely at things, there's really so much interesting just information. And there's so many crazy, beautiful things like a horsefly. If you look closely at their eyes, they'll have like some weird rainbow patterns going on. Like that's who would thought? <laughs> so it's really just, I, I love those photos to kind of inspire people to go and look closely at things. Cause I think that is just such an important part of sort of like engaging with your environment and really can just make life more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a fascinating resource for anybody who hasn't seen it. It's incredible. Um, so oftentimes those... I'll actually use them on my Instagram page. Cause I'll just like find such unique little characteristics in there. I'm like, people have to know about this. Like I never knew that, the hair on some bees was actually like branched or forked. It wasn't just a straight line of hair. It was like, it would come out and then it would fork off in different directions. And I was like, why, why would nature do that? Like that, like, that's so incredible. That's crazy. Wow. I had no idea about that. And that is super cool. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. So and the photos, they, I kind of was just shocked by it, but it's a, it's just a normal Canon camera and they take, like 100 to 200 photos, each focused on a slightly different part. And then they just stack all the photos. Oh, that's crazy. And it's actually pretty, it's a pretty low tech setup. I think Sam like built the whole thing himself. Oh, so Sam takes the photos as well. 
Yeah. So Sam sort of built the the contraption that moves the camera slightly to focus on different parts. And then anybody, I've taken a couple of pictures because it's actually super easy. Once you have the setup, you just put the bees in certain positions. And then a, it's a lot of interns and stuff just in and out of the bee lab will come in and take a photo. And then you just kind of remove the little dust specks and stuff. That's crazy. Yeah. That's so, cool. <laughs> so what, um, maybe we can detour on this really quick because I find it incredibly fascinating. What's the collection, like what's the size of that collection? And are you like systematically going through and like we're doing this box today and then next week we have this box scheduled or is it just like when we have downtime, we pull a bee out and photograph it? I, it's sort of a mix of both. So there's the bee lab itself is, the building I work in is just a repurposed garage and it is full of pizza boxes, which are full of bees. Um, so all the bees are just, you know, pinned and they're on these little pins full of like literally the walls from the floor to the ceiling are stacked with pizza boxes full of bees. And they all came from just a bunch of different projects. So people will send bees from all over the world for Sam to identify. And the cool ones he'll just kind of pick out to take photos so it'll be species that are, you know, rare or endangered or something that's just really beautiful. Or for example, um, they're trying to build a magnetic levitating train between DC and Baltimore, and they want to build it through um, a wildlife preserve. So, oh, um, which it's unfortunate because I can see why a lot of people would like this train that would basically totally revolutionize the commute between DC and Baltimore but it really would also totally destroy this habitat. So Sam went and just collected a whole bunch of different bugs, not just bees, and just took photos of all of them as kind of outreach to show what you would be losing if you develop that area. So it's really just kind of whatever they decide. The first day I went to the bee lab, I took a picture of a Bombus affinis specimen, which is a species, at least in the Maryland area. It used to be here and it is, basically extinct in this area it still is in some areas of the country but it was we took a photo of it here because it was an exciting find here uh how quickly did that that population like taper off and is there any uh, like any thoughts on why um i don't know too much about the time frame because i really just started paying attention like last year mm -hmm. but um I think it's been fairly slow, at least, you know, over tens of years. And I believe some of the problems are um, related to sort of disease um, being spread from some of the more common honeybee species. And I've actually, I, I wouldn't say that I know this to be the main cause of their decline or anything, because I don't know many details about that, but um, there are conversations about how using boxed um, bombus impatiens, like the common Eastern bumblebee, people put them in greenhouses to pollinate tomatoes and things. And um, similarly to problems in honeybee um, hives that happen when you have too many bees in a small area, people are worried that, um, or theorizing that bees um, with diseases in those sort of managed populations could have spread the diseases too the wild bombus affinis and contributed to its downfall. It doesn't seem to be um, really 
resource related for them. I don't think it's because like their host plant isn't available or something like that as other features. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's always like a challenge beekeepers face and probably try to address with pesticide or, uh, you know, chemicals in the hive too, and keeping that, that virus low down. It's, uh, I don't know. It's a tricky subject. I, yeah, I feel like it's difficult to, um, love honeybees or like, um, you know, the managed bumblebee species, but know that they have that negative impact. Cause I, it, you know, like humans spread viruses between each other. It's, it's gotta be the same thing there too. Yeah. And it is really things that I just never would have thought about that they have the same sort of you know, population dynamics in terms of disease as humans would, just that dense populations are going to have more problems with disease. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So talk to me about the bumblebee survey. Right. Okay. So the Ask a Bumblebee survey, we are um, trying to figure out bumblebee floral preference. So basically just which are bumblebee's favorite flowers. And I was under the impression that we already knew that. And I think a lot of people also think that. And we definitely have some understanding of the flowers that bumblebees like, but it is not super holistic, I would say, because a lot of these lists of bumblebee recommended plants will include plants like maybe like dandelions or yarrow that at least in my pilot data, we did a um, hundred surveys last year. And in analyzing that we saw no visitation to some of these species that are often recommended. Um, like I think dandelions, we saw one bee visit, one bumblebee visited dandelion in all of our hundred surveys and nothing visited yarrow. Um, so there are still definitely some improvements to be made to bumblebee recommendation plants. Um, and how we are hoping to do that is really just trying to get a ton of data. So we are focusing on accessibility of the survey and really minimizing the requirements so that everybody can participate. So I hope anybody listening chooses to participate. But um, all you actually need to do a survey is you, a phone, which there are some ways around it. You could also just use a camera if you know how to identify flowers. But we use, um, I guess I'll take a step back. To do a survey, you just walk around for 30 minutes and you take a picture of every blooming plant species that you see and you tally if bumblebees or carpenter bees are visiting those plants. So it's super simple. And I think the things that generally limit the pool of people who can participate is the need to identify plants or identify bees. So we've basically eliminated those requirements. We use an app, Seek by iNaturalist, to identify all the plants. Um, and if I know there are a lot of apps out there that identify plants and a lot of people also know how to identify their plants. So if you would rather identify them another way, that's totally fine. We just recommend seek because people like myself don't know their plants and then you can actually still participate. Um, and then you don't need to identify bees farther than calling it a bumblebee which I think is generally pretty easy for people to do, especially if you're in the bee world, you probably have paid some more attention to them. But I think the average person doesn't really think of bumblebee, honeybee, 
uh, you know, different species of bees. They just think of bees as sort of a monolith. So we do have a couple of resources on just, this is what a honeybee looks like. This is what a bumblebee looks like. This is what a carpenter bee looks like. But I think anybody could learn that in 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, it seems like people generally understand what a bumblebee is to some degree versus a honeybee once they're given a few minutes of instruction or a few pictures. So. Right. Exactly. It's one of those things that it's like, once you see it, you will never understand how you didn't notice the difference before. But if you aren't looking out for different types of bees, you'll just notice there's something flying on that flower. And so the, the pictures for the plant identification, if they need to do that, do they need, are you looking to have the bee in the shot as well? So you're identifying the bee or this is just focused on the plant species to understand where they're visiting the plant or what plants are visiting. Yeah, great question. We don't need the photos of bees at all. It is really a plant-focused survey, which um, is kind of interesting that we, you know, want to know the plants even if bees aren't visiting them, and we don't care as much about verifying. Um, you know, we we need to verify the floral IDs, but we're going to trust that people are able to call something a bumblebee. But it really comes down to the plants because when you want to support the native bees, all you can really do for them is plant their host plants and provide desirable habitat. So really, if we want to help the bumblebees, it's all about the plants. Is there a reason that you guys are just focusing on the bumblebees for this? Or is it just like, we can't boil the ocean, we just got to start somewhere on this? I would say um, compared to bees, it's compared to or the rest of bees, Bumblebees, I think, are really great for this type of observational survey because of the 4,000-something species of bees in the U.S., the majority of them are, you know, the size of a grain of rice and black. So if I wanted to have any chance of identifying them, we would need to catch them and kill them. And I think right there you lose a lot of participants. And it's a pretty different experience in doing the survey. So bumblebees, I think, we're focusing on because they're so big and so visible and also pretty charismatic, I think. So I think they're pretty um, well suited for a community science project because a lot of people are interested in looking at bumblebees. And also they're just, you can really see um, the, the ability to identify them to species in the field is I think really unique to bumblebees and a couple other species of, or genera of bees, maybe you could do that in the field, but it's pretty unique to have such big bees with actually um, visible differences between species that people could learn within weeks. So I guess really it boils down to just the ease. And then we did consider adding some other orders like we talked about doing monarchs because that's something that people could easily identify but that comes down to the you can't boil the ocean we want people to stay focused <laughs> yeah absolutely and you guys are just starting in eastern or northeastern u.s it seems like and as your target states just because that's kind of more local to where your headquarters and that's a place to start instead of just opening it up to all of the u.s right yeah, so that is um, comes down to, again, it just is if we accepted, well, we are accepting data from the whole country and Canada, but 
if we tried to analyze everything all at once, it would probably just be really overwhelming because at the moment, the entire team is myself and Sam. And I got one intern the other day, <laughs> but it's really just because the data entry is from these paper sheets. And then we have to have a botanist identify all the flowers. It's time consuming. And then we need a botanist with expertise in that floral range. So anything aside the Northeast, we're going to have to hire a different botanist who knows those flowers. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, is it extending more than just this year or are you guys capping it at just 2022? No, we're definitely, I think, um, at least into the indefinite future, the survey will be going on at some point. I don't think the data will really be novel anymore and we'll just have gotten everything we need. And at that point, maybe it'll stop. But as myself um, starting the project, I don't really have much of a idea about the longer term projection of it, just because I don't really know how long it generally takes to get all the data we would want and the logistics further into the future. But I know Sam is definitely interested in keeping the project running in coming years. So once you have this data and you're processing it throughout the year and everything like that, where is it going to feed one particular area of the research you guys are looking at, or is just we're collecting the data for potential future use somewhere? Um, we, so our goal with the data is pretty basic. We really just want to come out with a list of plants that we recommend because um, generally the more complicated analysis that's done by grad students getting their PhD or something, they come out with a lot more complicated results. And a lot of times you'll end up with something that looks like a list of plants on the left and a list of bees on the right and a bunch of lines connecting them showing what was visiting what at what rates. And those are definitely valuable in their own way and super informative to some people. But we're kind of thinking more trying to really just get stuff done and get a list that we can get out to land managers or other people who are interested in helping bumblebees so we can help them do that the best they can. And there's some questions, or go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to ask on uh, if you find invasives on that list when it comes back as higher up than you would think are you do you think that you'll still include those in recommendations or you're looking to just just highlight the native plants that they're visiting that's a really really interesting question and it actually did come up in our pilot data we got um there was some visitation to porcelain berry which is a pretty bad invasive around here at least um and i don't i don't think we'll recommend and definitely invasives we won't recommend to plant things that are non-native but not aggressive i think it is a little bit more complicated definitely I, i've asked this question to sam because i i wonder it as well somebody asked me once um even if bees are visiting you know the invasives how do you know that it's not like the equivalent of a giant diet Coke and it's like tasty to them, but not actually as healthy. And maybe it doesn't have the right combinations of different fats and proteins and secondary compounds and stuff in the pollen that 
the native plants would have. So that is all a little bit beyond my knowledge at this point, but I think in general, native plants are always the best resource to native insects just because they have co-evolved for so many years. And then also the non-native plants that bumblebees are visiting, they likely aren't useful to other native insects. So as much as we're focused on bumblebees, if we're actually gonna recommend a plant to be planted for in a certain area, I would hope that it will also help the rest of the community or at least will fit in nicely in this new community that it's in. So I could see some non-natives making it on the list. I definitely don't think anything that's an aggressive invasive would be recommended to plant. But from our pilot data, our number one plant was cup plant, which I had never heard of until I started there. And it's technically not native to Maryland, but it is native to Virginia. So it's sort of that question where, what is, how significant is this nativity? And is the, is it really the state line is the divider? There's just kind of, it gets a little complicated with the non-natives that are adjacent. So I don't know, I think it's really just something to think about. And I guess it could be answered with studies on the pollen composition and things like that. So I'll have to look into that more. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's always a difficult question on native versus non-native. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the problems we face now with everything, it's it's uh, it's almost like if they are if they're on it, maybe it's better than not having it. And yeah, I'm not sure. I I think it's just a sticky question, especially when state by state. Because I mean, what if it's on a state border? What is that? Right. Mean, you know? So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Um, so they so people backing up a little bit so people would people would be taking the sheets that they're filling out and emailing them to you or taking photos and uploading them to a box folder right and everything are we uh are we able to freely distribute that stuff and like put it on our our website and link it so that people could download it from us as well or you want to link directly to your website like what's the best way for people to get those the sheets and any other information around this totally feel free to link anything um People can totally get the sheets online. They're on our website. The only thing is I recommend emailing me so that I can make you a folder in our Google Drive, which is generally how I recommend to upload data. A lot of people don't want to mess with Google Drive. And I think if you're just testing out the survey to see if it's something you'd be interested in, maybe there's no need to bother with Google Drive and you can just email me the data sheet and all your flower photos. But the tricky thing with email is that generally it limits you to about six photos. So if you're going to email it, you either have to do a zip file or send me a bunch of emails. Either of those is totally fine. But if you're going to do a bunch of surveys, it's probably going to be easier for you to upload into Google Drive. So just send me an email at bumblebeecount at gmail.com and I'll set you up. Awesome. I know for us, so I'm I'm in the West Coast right now in the, um, the Northwest, and it's been a very long winter. Like today is on again and off again, raining still. Like we barely had any sunny days, and I just saw the bees, some of the bumblebees out yesterday. Um, I don't. How has it been for you guys on the East Coast? And are you uh, 
are you like in the height of your bee season? Like we would be as well, but this has just been a very long, long winter for us. So. That's really interesting. I would say I wouldn't call it the height yet, but we definitely have a lot of bee activity right now. Um, I think the later summer and fall is when I'll see the most. And I guess I just, it might be because I am seeing all the good bumblebee plants as I can. So if you have, if your garden, you know, is mainly blooming now, you'll probably see more bees now than you would later in the summer. But the top plants that I'll see bumblebees on are generally um, mountain mint and bee balm. And neither of those two are in bloom yet. And they're coming up soon. So I think once those are in bloom, things will get really, really crazy. But definitely at this point, we're starting to see um, males are starting to emerge. There's a lot of workers out and the numbers are definitely climbing. A couple, I would say about a month ago now, maybe queens were out in significant numbers. But um, the bumblebee life cycle sort of is that a queen will overwinter and then she will sort of emerge from her hibernation and start uh, collecting some nectar and begin setting up her nest. And then she will lay a generation of workers. And then those workers will take, you know, a week or two to develop or not a week or two, but they'll take a while to develop. And then eventually the workers emerge. So at the very beginning of the season, you'll only see queens because it's the queens that overwintered and survived through the winter from last year. And then you'll have a little lag where they're finding their nests and they're um, setting up their nests. And then eventually it kind of all booms when the workers finally are adults and emerge. And that's sort of where we are right now. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we're probably like a month behind you guys just because of our, our long winter. So that's, that's interesting to see that they're there. I still see Queens flying right mm. now. Um, but, Do yeah. you notice if they're um, visiting flowers or looking just sort of, sometimes you can see them like flying low to the ground and leaf pile sort of things looking for nest sites. We I saw that behavior more like a month ago or maybe a little longer ago. Now when I see the queens out, they're um, they're definitely on the flowers. Okay, so, very cool, very yeah. cool. Yeah. Do you guys on the East Coast and maybe this is just a very broad general ask, but are your bumblebees more in ground bumblebees uh, versus like what I see out here and I get a lot of calls for? are bumblebee, bumblebee removals from like compost piles, like elevated compost piles or birdhouses, not a lot of in-ground bumblebees. And I wasn't sure how common that was out by on the East Coast. That's really interesting. I My hunch is to say not that common because I nobody's contacted me about anything like that. Um, I have not seen many nests myself because they're generally pretty tricky to find. Mm -hmm. But as definitely the ones that I have seen have been in the ground and in sort of leaf piley things. So I think compost elevated compost, I could see that sounds like something they would like, but I haven't heard anything about um, like birdhouses. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. I get about half a dozen calls a year on that. And wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really common out here. Um, and is that something, are you the person to call for that or are they just, no. <laughs> no, I generally refer them. I have a few people on a list that love 
rehoming them to their house or other places they have so they'll, they'll go and do it i've tried it a few times and i find it really difficult to ensure that they live i feel like once i move them no matter how careful i am there's just something about disturbing that environment like even if i just block the hole and pick it up and put it in my car and then bring and put it in another place you know they just they generally die out within like a few weeks and I'm, I'm just not not sure other people have fairly good success but i would say it's i've i feel like most people say it's very challenging to rehome a bumblebee colony and not have them die which i'm not sure why but i'm not sure why because my only other relation to that is rehoming honeybees and i feel like you can bash around honeybees and they still <laughs> live like they're so resilient so yeah yeah i wonder if it's um the new environment versus the actual transport. That's yeah. really interesting. I just, I haven't heard about trying to move them, but I know Sam has been trying to establish nests in different ways for years and says it's incredibly difficult and is not having much success. But I know some people have managed to sort of build a nest and have them actually be occupied. But I definitely think bumblebee nests are sort of a mysterious not super well understood and tricky thing to deal with. Yeah. You, I always hear that um, they like to make their nests in rodent burrows. Mm -hmm. So do you, have you ever seen that or? Uh, not in the rodent burrows, but I see a similar behavior in the, in the, like in the bird nests because they're, it'll be that the bird has lived in it for several years and there's a lot of down feathers in there or similar, mm -hmm. like, fluffy things that they can like pull apart or the birds gathered a lot of fine tree fibers or something in there so it's it's fluffy in there and that's how they like push things around and like make their nest inside of there so it's almost like a rodent burrow but just elevated to some degree interesting yeah yeah but yeah what what would you say if you have one is your favorite bee it's a tough question because my heart wants to pick a bumblebee because they're, you know, my study subject. And I think they're so charismatic, but then I also think they're a little bit um, overrated almost because everybody appreciates the, not everybody, but a lot of people like bumblebees and there's just so many bees that people don't even know or haven't heard of. I don't know. That is a tough question. I think I might have to say um, some of the euglossa, the oil collecting bees, are super, super cool because they'll be, I recommend everybody Googles Euglossa, um, but Sam has some great photos actually of, they just have these incredibly long tongues that it, it like will curl like so, so far away from their face. And they have these really interesting, um, like huge sort of corbicula structures that they put the oil on and they're just really cool and beautiful. And I think it's very unique that they collect oil instead of nectar. So maybe that's a good transition into the work you're going to be doing right in the future right. on that, on the Andean um, oil collecting bees. First of all, the, the corbicula is, are the very hind legs, right? Yeah. It's, yeah it's like the little sort of, um, normally the area almost on that hind leg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So why, why are they collecting the oil? Are, is there different nutrients in there that they're collecting and are these bees I actually don't know much about these bees. I've, I've read about them a few times, but are they only native to certain areas? Can you explain a little bit about maybe their life cycle as well? Yeah, so I 
we'll just say I know very little about these bees because I'm just going to get started. Um, but they definitely do get some unique resources from the oils. Um, I believe they use it to sort of um, help similarly to how um, bees that use nectar will use it to kind of stick the pollen together. I think they do some of that, but there's also some other uses that I will just say, I don't know because yeah. I don't really know. Um, do you know how they collect the oil? I think it's with um, these crazy tongues. Oh, okay. Interesting. Are they native? I'm making an assumption here, but I assume they're native to South America, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I feel like there I've are... seen pictures of them uh, from there. Yeah. There's a couple different groups of oil collecting bees. Um, I'm trying to think of what um, the categories are, but these are some big words that I think I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. No problem. Um, um, are they, are they generally bumblebee sized bees that are oil collecting? Or do you know if they're like, like some of the smaller native bee sizes or is it just range? I would say there is, there's definitely a range. I would say most of them are sort of more like honeybee to tiny bees, but more, I would say close to honeybee, but slightly smaller. Mm, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's super interesting. So do you know the, or I guess, let me ask, like, when do you, when do you start this, this new work on that stuff? Like, is it, are you going to the Andes to do this? Or like, do you know much detail about what you're going to be doing it? Cause it, it sounds really fascinating. So I, it does sound very interesting to me. I really wish I was going to the Andes, but my advisor already collected a bunch of specimens. So all the data is already there, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, I guess, but so I'm just going to take, um, I'm going to do this at the University of Maryland and the Espindola lab. So it's pretty separate from the B lab, but I will say working with my bumblebees one day a week at least. Um, so that should be fun. But in this lab, I will be taking these specimens. So these bees that were collected um, kind of a while ago. And I think some of them are also specimens from museums or other places that they've just kind of been uh, my advisor sort of was emailing around collecting specimens from other people. And I will just sequence the DNA of these bees. And then based on the relatedness of these um, different bees, I will try to understand the evolutionary history of the bees in terms of um, sort of why they're in these different regions of the Andes and like, so why are some sort of isolated to the north and why are some isolated to the south and things sort of like, how did the formation of the continents and glaciation and um, breaks in glaciation result in just these different um, land masses and habitat types and how that results in the locations of these different bees. That's super interesting. That's it is really crazy to me that you can go from DNA sequences to those sort of questions about evolutionary history. And I will say right now, I, my understanding is pretty limited, but I'm very excited to learn more. <laughs>
Do you know much about the DNA sequencing or just maybe broad strokes on like how that happens or how you'll be doing that type of work? Yeah, I think generally you just start with the bee and you kind of will take like maybe a leg or a part of it and like grind it up and then do some extractions just in a lab with various chemicals. And then you send it off to a different lab that just gives you back like a a big file of, you know, ATCG, et cetera. <laughs> Interesting. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, yeah. Anything else you want to add? Actually, I'm sorry. I totally missed. Talk to me about the human virology work. I know this is totally outside of the bees and everything, right. but uh, when I saw that you've done work around that too, or just, you know, have dabbled in it, I don't know. It just seemed yeah, really yeah. yeah. So that I was, um, and it kind of actually leads to me, my being at the bee lab and then my next step with the Andean bees. So I used to just want to do biology and I didn't know about the whole bug world and how exciting everything was. So I just was like, okay, let me get my foot in the door and research. And I joined this research program at the University of Maryland, FIRE, first year innovation and research experience. Um, and I was working on these different viruses and um, we were trying to understand the rate. Okay, I'll take a step back. So the viruses, in order to be effective and um, cause disease, they, they frame shift, which basically means they will, when the um, a ribosome is reading the DNA sequence or the RNA sequence, because it's a virus, um, they will move back one base or forward one base, and it will change how the entire DNA is read um, or RNA again. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure how much people know about genetics, but DNA and RNA are read in sets of three bases or a codon is three bases. So if you shift one, um, you're getting completely different sets of three. Everything is one off. So um, each set of three bases translates to a protein. So if you shift it one, you're going to get an entirely different set of proteins. Um, so frame shifting can be super beneficial for viruses because they have really small genomes because they're just so small and have very little um, components and very little genetic information. So they will use frame shifting to let them make more proteins out of this small genome because they have just the one sort of script, but they'll read it in one way and get a whole one set of proteins and then they'll shift one base and they'll get a whole different set of proteins. So if we were able to stop them from frame shifting and then um, basically if we can stop them from sh frame shifting, we can create a vaccine because it would be a very weak version of the virus, but it still would contain a lot of the parts that you know our body would use to create immunity. So all I was doing is testing the rate of how much they're shifting over one base. And then you know downstream, people will hopefully be able to manipulate that and create a weak virus, which could be used as a vaccine. Do different viruses frame shift at different rates? Yeah, absolutely. It totally um, depends on the virus and there is a lot of variation there. So a lot of viruses don't 
use this, but like one notable one that does is HIV. Mm -hmm. The frame shift is almost their mutations and evolutions to stay infectious, I guess, or is, do Sort they know, of. I guess like what's the like base cause of that and the biological driver from the virus side to do that? So I guess it's that viruses just are so basic. All, all viruses are is a little tiny sequence of RNA and a shell and um, some proteins like for Corona, the, um, the spike protein that's, you know, on the outside and helps it be recognized and let into cells. So because they're so minimal, it is just beneficial or they, by having a super tiny genome, they don't have to expend so much energy into just having all of this RNA and, you know, creating it. Um, so it just is kind of like energetically cheaper for them. And I think easier to have these tiny genomes. And then the frame shift allows them to get all of the proteins they need out of this very small genome that without the frame shift may be insignificant or insufficient to meet their needs. Yeah, man. talk about <laughs> <laughs> a new world I have no idea about, but it's super interesting. this is funny for me i haven't thought about this in like a year or two so i'm like refreshing my own memory Um, how does and does it lead into the molecular pollination? And what is, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I had actually never heard about that when we were emailing back and forth about this, so. Right. Yeah. So, um, the, the work I was doing in particular isn't super related to, um, pollination biology and the molecular side of that, but it just sort of gave me the skill set that I'm going to need to take into, um, my next sort of wet lab experience. But in terms of the molecular side of entomology, I think a lot of it is with genetic work and trying to understand just how related different things are, because I think the understanding of um, just the relatedness of all these species is pretty poorly understood because there are just so many bugs out there. It's like infinite. We could never actually understand all of them. And then there'd be, you know, a million new ones by the time we do. But Yeah, I think it's a lot of genetics. Um, and one interesting part in my mind is um, RNAi or RNA interference is really big in agriculture because you can use, um, you can create these sequences of RNA that will basically shut off certain genes um, in the insects. So you could disrupt their genomes in ways that maybe for a pest species, like mosquitoes, for example, you can use RNA interference to um, break one of their genes and make them sterile. And then you can have all these sterile mosquitoes and release them into a place that's having a problem with malaria. And the um, you know wild mosquitoes will reproduce with them, but they won't be able to produce any offspring. So you'll reduce the population that way. How, <laughs> how does that happen? Like, I mean, maybe, maybe I just, I guess, how do you go introducing or shutting off different genes and in insects? Like where, where in the process did that start? Cause it's not just like you give them a syringe, right? And you just like poke the 
poke the uh, mosquito, and now they shut off a gene. The the cre I actually had a um, there was a presentation at UMD recently that was on making RNAi more simple, and they basically have gotten it down that you can inject these bugs with a syringe. Wow! But you have to. There's definitely some build up to it because you have to um, build the gene. You have to build a broken version of the gene, basically, that it will not quite. My my understanding of RNA interference is not great. So if there's anybody listening that is in the field, don't judge me. <laughs> um, it Basically, it will just, the sequence, you'll inject them with a sequence of DNA that will pair to theirs, and then it won't be able to be read anymore. Mm. So it really is as simple as you put these sequences in their bodies and... They will go and find the the uh, corresponding gene and stop it from being read. That's it's cool. really crazy. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, anything else you want to add? I really appreciate you coming and chatting with me today. It's been awesome. I've learned a lot, and um... I do have. I want to thank a couple people because, well, first, Denise Ellsworth from Ohio State University is absolutely incredible and made our whole website for us, which is why our website is through Ohio State because there is no other connection to Ohio State. Um, but Denise has been super amazing. And yeah, thank you for hosting the website. And she also hosted the webinar that I think you may have found me from. So thanks for putting this together basically. Um, and then just Sam Drogi, I wanna say, has been a huge, huge part of this project. He really is the one who basically handed it to me on a silver platter and got me so interested in all of this. And he is a really, really amazing person. And anybody who has a chance to go stop by the V lab in Maryland and volunteer anything should definitely do it because it is so much fun. That's awesome. What's, what's the website again? If you could just tell us and I'll also list it in the notes for everybody too. U.osu.edu slash ask a bumble slash. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, we'll list that in the notes for everybody to check out too. Thank you so much. Really Thank appreciate you. it. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah.